You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. Today, episode 98, Voting for Independence. Over the spring and early summer of 1776, momentum grew for independence. Britain and the colonies had been at war for nearly a year by then. The colonies had done pretty well militarily. Colonists had inflicted serious British casualties during the raid on Concord and again at Bunker Hill. Further, they had forced the regulars to evacuate Boston and were, for the moment, pretty much in control of the 13 colonies. Sure, the British took back most of Canada in May and June, but overall the colonists were looking pretty good. Many people credit Thomas Paine's common sense for helping to move the population in favor of independence. Now, certainly Paine and other pamphleteers had an influence, but when someone asked John Adams decades later who he thought was most instrumental in furthering the independence movement, he had an interesting answer. King George III. The king announced at the opening of Parliament in the fall of 1775 that there would be no compromise and that he supported the use of military force to compel obedience. This speech, along with his rejection of the Olive Branch Petition, made clear that there would be no politically negotiated solution. Either the British would win by force of arms and the colonists would end up like Ireland, forced to accept whatever London did to them, or the colonists would win and become independent. There was no longer a middle ground. It was time to pick a side, and most people picked independence. Getting that through the Continental Congress, though, was going to be a fight. Many delegates still wanted a negotiated solution, no matter how unlikely that looked. Histories of the Continental Congress usually portray John Adams of Massachusetts as the leader of the independence movement. Congressional debates were secret. No one outside of Congress knew exactly what was happening. Members were forbidden even to write letters to friends about the debates going on in Congress. Of course, Congress published their final declarations and orders, but internal debates remained private. So looking back, we may see John Adams as the central leader because John Adams wrote much of the history around what happened. Decades later, long after he was president, Adams wrote his autobiography and other documents and letters describing the debate. I'm not saying he lied. There are dozens of other delegates who generally corroborated his story, but he did have every incentive to focus on and perhaps exaggerate his role, and probably did so. John Dickinson of Pennsylvania typically gets credited or blamed for leading the opposition to independence. He clearly did oppose independence. He was also one of the few delegates who never signed the Declaration. But calling Adams the leader of the independence movement and Dickinson the leader of the opposition may be an oversimplification. There were around 50 delegates present for most of the debate, and a great many of them fought hard for and against independence. Most of the delegations were divided on the issue, with many opponents eventually agreeing to support independence despite their better judgment, only because they thought the colonies needed to be united against Britain. 
So today I want to take a closer look at the debate over independence and how we reached the consensus to declare independence by the beginning of July. At the beginning of the Second Continental Congress in 1775, almost everyone, at least publicly, opposed independence. Even after shedding blood at Lexington, most people seem to think that Britain and the colonies could negotiate some settlement. It was really only by late 1775, after London made it clear that it was going to fight, not talk, that independence began to gain real momentum. Adams was, of course, an early advocate and leader for the cause. He was circumspect, though, about advocating for it too early. His big concern was dividing the colonies and leaving New England on its own to fight the war. He wanted a consensus before moving forward to open debate. In May 1776, Adams wrote a letter to James Warren, who was still president of the Massachusetts Provincial Congress, assessing where each of the colonies stood. Adams thought that New England, that is, Massachusetts, New Hampshire, Connecticut, and Rhode Island, would support independence. The southern colonies, Virginia, North and South Carolina, and Georgia, were also pretty likely supporters. The middle colonies, New York, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Delaware, and Maryland, were all still pretty resistant. Even so, Adams decided it was time to test the waters. The way they moved into debate was pretty sneaky. On May 10th, Congress passed a resolution calling on the colonies that no longer had an effective government to create one for themselves that would protect the, quote, happiness and safety, end quote, of the people. Now, that seemed pretty reasonable. If a colony did not have a working government, it should create one that worked. The resolution did not mandate anything, and most colonies had already created their own provincial congresses to run things. The resolution essentially said, Great job, guys. Keep doing what you're doing. It passed unanimously and without much debate. Then, a few days later, a committee made up of Adams, Edward Rutledge of South Carolina, and Richard Henry Lee of Virginia added a preamble to the resolution. The preamble was longer than the resolution itself. It attacked the king for waging war on the colonies and for hiring foreign mercenaries to destroy them. It said it was absolutely, quote, irreconcilable to reason and good conscience, end quote, for people to swear loyalty to a royal government in light of these horrific acts of war. Therefore, the colonies needed to create these new governments. With the preamble added to the resolution, it sounded much more like a declaration of independence. Congress would be supporting the colonies creating new governments because they could no longer live under the authority of a tyrannical king. The notes we have only say that Congress agreed to the preamble, but did not list any sort of vote. We know that the debate was contentious and that many delegates objected to it. Over the next few weeks, this put front and center the debate over independence, both in Congress and in various colonial legislatures. On May 15th, the same day the Continental Congress was voting on the preamble, the Virginia Convention in Williamsburg voted on a resolution proposed by Patrick Henry to send to the Continental Congress. The resolution read, quote, These united colonies are and of right ought to be free and independent states, that they are absolved from all allegiance to the British crown, 
and that all political connection between them and the state of Great Britain is and ought to be totally dissolved. End quote. On June 7th, Richard Henry Lee introduced this resolution into the Continental Congress. Delegates began formal debate on the issue the following week. Not surprisingly, much of the opposition came from New York and Pennsylvania. Robert Livingston, James Wilson, and John Dickinson all opposed its adoption and argued strenuously against it. Edward Rutledge of South Carolina also opposed adoption. The main argument of the opponents was not that independence should never happen. They were concerned that it would divide the colonies and that the division would make them look like idiots to foreign governments with whom they were trying to create treaties and military alliances. Congress needed to be in a position where the colonies could actually operate as independent states before declaring themselves independent. They should at least get formal directives from each colony before embarking on such a drastic declaration. Let's face it, this was really a big step. Shouldn't we make sure that the people were really on board with all of this? Others were concerned about foreign alliances. Are we really sure countries like France and Spain would back us? What if they simply decided to use the division to recapture some of their own lost colonies and perhaps take a little more from a divided Britain? Congress agreed to put off debate for a few weeks so that the delegates could communicate with their home colonies and see if they could get approval to support independence. In the meantime, just in case they got approval, Congress would appoint a committee to work on drafting a declaration. They also created a committee to work on a plan for confederation and another committee to work on treaties with foreign countries. As I said, some colonies were clearly ready for independence. New England especially. Rhode Island had essentially declared its own independence on May 4th when the legislature passed resolutions terminating British authority over the colony. The Connecticut Assembly voted on June 14th to instruct its delegates to support independence. New Hampshire's House of Representatives did the same thing on June 15th. It was Massachusetts, of all places, that was most divided on independence among the New England colonies. Of the five delegates, only two, John and Samuel Adams, solidly backed independence. Two others, Robert Treat Payne and Thomas Cushing, opposed it. The fifth delegate and deciding vote was John Hancock. He seemed to support it, but he was still fighting with the Adamses over other issues. They were upset because Hancock had not relinquished the presidency of Congress to Peyton Randolph of Virginia when he returned to Congress. Hancock was still miffed at the Adamses for them backing Washington rather than him for command of the Continental Army. In December 1775, Adams got around this problem by having the Massachusetts Provincial Congress replace Cushing with Elbridge Gerry, who backed independence. This assured that Hancock would not be the critical, necessary third vote for independence and avoided a potentially embarrassing fight over whether Massachusetts' delegation would support independence. In the South, Virginia, which had instructed its delegates to support independence in May, was clearly on board. North Carolina, home of the Mecklenburg Resolution, and where patriots had already fought in open combat at the Battle of Moores Creek Bridge, had voted to support independence in April, even before Virginia. 
South Carolina had created a new independent government in April, but still expressed hope for an accommodation with Great Britain. They also faced a potential British invasion in June in what became the Battle of Sullivan's Island. South Carolina essentially punted and told its delegates to support whatever they thought was right. A majority of delegates supported independence, but the delegation's leader, Edward Rutledge, remained opposed. Georgia, the smallest and probably most loyalist colony in the South, also simply told their delegates to use their best judgment, but those delegates seemed to be on board with independence. So that left the middle colonies, where independence seemed to have its weakest support. Delaware appeared to be most in favor of independence among this group. Delaware's status as its own colony was under question, since they were still technically considered to be part of Pennsylvania. Even so, the Delaware Assembly refused to authorize independence. It left its delegates with rather vague instructions, essentially letting the delegates decide for themselves. The Maryland delegation walked out of Congress on May 15th when Congress debated the controversial preamble that smacked of supporting independence. The Maryland Convention received Congress's resolution. It then unanimously voted not to create a new government and reaffirmed its loyalty to the king. On June 21st, the Provincial Convention in Maryland recalled its delegates to discuss the matter, but wanted an assurance from Congress that it would not vote on independence while they were away. Since Congress planned to begin the debate on July 1st, this was a problem. New Jersey was in a period of transition. The colony had strong loyalist population and could really go either way. The royal governor, William Franklin, attempted to call the assembly into session in May 1776, even though he was under house arrest. The provincial congress finally reacted by replacing the royal government in June and supporting independence. But this was a power play by the patriots. It was not clear that the colony's population would go along with it. And that leaves us with two of the largest and most important colonies. New York, and Pennsylvania. Even if the other 11 went along with independence, it's hard to see how it would work without these two colonies on board. New York would prove the most intractable. The New York Assembly remained in power until June 1776. Unlike most other colonies, Loyalists had also participated in the Provincial Congress as well. This gave them more influence in selecting delegates to the Continental Congress who opposed independence, as well as keeping the Provincial Congress itself from going too far. New York was also facing an imminent invasion. A leader, even open to the idea of independence, might have second thoughts if he believed that the British Army would reassert control over the colony a month later and begin looking for leading traitors to arrest and hang. Conservatives in New York tried to slow the momentum toward independence. After receiving word that the Continental Congress would debate the matter, the Provincial Congress voted that it would not support independence until it took a vote of the people in its colony. And it could not take a vote because, well, that British invasion was about to happen. So New York's delegation would be stuck with instructions not to support independence, at least until New Yorkers could vote on the question. Also, of course, Pennsylvania was still going through a radical change that spring and summer that I discussed in detail last week, so I won't go through all that again. 
On July 1, 1776, the Continental Congress finally sat down to debate independence. That morning, supporters of independence got a boost when an express rider arrived from Maryland to say that Maryland delegates could support independence. The debate took place under parliamentary procedure known as Committee of the Whole. Basically, the entire Congress sat in the committee so that they could discuss things a little more informally than when they were in session of Congress. As a result, Benjamin Harrison sat as the committee chair rather than Hancock as president of Congress. John Dickinson spoke for most of the day, arguing against independence. He raised all the familiar arguments, that America needed European allies on board first, that Britain would unleash hell on the colonies by destroying trades, burning towns, and stirring up the Indians on the frontiers against the colonies. Adams commented to another delegate that the whole debate was a waste of time, making the same arguments that everyone had heard for the last six months. After Dickinson finished speaking, no one else rose to speak. Finally, Adams stood and outlined the case for independence without really having a planned speech in hand. No one recorded what he said, but Adams later said they were basically the same arguments he had made 20 times before. By some accounts, other delegates spoke as well, but again, we have no record of the actual debates. The debate went late into the day, ending around 7 p.m. At the end of the day, delegates took an informal poll to see where everyone stood. Nine colonies seemed ready for independence. New York still had instructions to vote no. Pennsylvania and South Carolina both voted no. Delaware had only two delegates present, one for, one opposed. At that point, Congress decided to put off a formal vote until the next day. Overnight, informal discussions tried to get the opponents on board. Most of South Carolina's delegations seemed to favor independence, but had voted no out of respect for their delegation leader, Edward Rutledge. The New York delegation actually supported independence, but had to remain loyal to their instructions not to vote yes, and abstained. Pennsylvania, which had seven delegates, had voted four to three against independence. Benjamin Franklin, John Morton, and James Wilson supported independence, even though Wilson had been a critic of the move for some time. Other delegates, John Dickinson, Robert Morris, Thomas Willing, and Charles Humphreys, voted against. Now, the Pennsylvania delegates knew that the more radical Pennsylvania Provincial Congress supported independence and was getting ready to elect new delegates in about three weeks. Delaware had a third delegate who would likely support independence. Caesar Rodney was down in Dover at the time, putting down a potential Loyalist uprising there. He could possibly put Delaware in the Yes column, but only if he returned in time. The next day, July 2nd, Congress finally held the vote. The nine colonies expecting to vote for independence did in fact do so. Apparently overnight, the pressure on the no voters seemed to have an impact. Rutledge of South Carolina decided to let the delegation vote yes, mostly for the sake of unanimity. He realized the colonies could not be divided on this issue if they expected to have any chance of winning the war. Overnight, Delaware delegate Caesar Rodney made a famous ride through a thunderstorm to reach Congress that morning. His vote tipped the Delaware delegation in favor of independence. Rodney's ride is celebrated in the musical 1776. And if you grew up in Delaware like I did, you learn all about Rodney's famous ride. 
The main square in Wilmington is named Rodney Square and has a statue of Rodney on his horse, making his famous ride to Congress. The Pennsylvania delegates also decided to make a change in favor of unanimity. As much as the opponents thought it a mistake, they agreed that unanimity was important and that a no vote would now only delay things a few weeks until the Provincial Congress replaced them. When Congress got ready to vote, Dickinson and Morris got up and walked out. They did this deliberately, knowing it would allow the Pennsylvania delegation to vote 3-2 to two in favor of independence. They did not want to change their personal votes, but agreed that unanimity was most important. In the end, only New York abstained, leaving 12 colonies for independence and none opposed. New York, once it realized it remained the one holdout, finally voted to allow its delegates to vote yes on July 9th. Congress got word the following week, finally making the vote unanimous. For Adams, this vote was the victory he had sought, not the wording of the declaration itself. The day following the vote, July 3rd, he wrote to his wife Abigail, saying, The second day of July, 1776, will be the most memorable epic in the history of America. I am apt to believe that it will be celebrated by succeeding generations as the great anniversary festival. It ought to be commemorated as a day of deliverance, by solemn acts of devotion to God Almighty. It ought to be solemnized with pomp and parade, with shows, games, sports, guns, bells, bonfires, and illuminations, from one end of this continent to the other, from this time forward forevermore. With the vote for independence complete, next week we'll take a look at the actual drafting of the Declaration of Independence. This episode is brought to you by eBay Motors. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure that your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hey, thanks for joining another American Revolution podcast book recommendation. This week, I covered the plans to vote for independence. The decision to vote for independence is, of course, crucial to the revolution itself. I would argue it's the central moment about which all other events revolved. I'm devoting not only this week, but the next two weeks to this important topic. Next week, we will go over how the actual declaration got drafted, and the week after that is a line-by-line -line review of the final declaration itself. A few months ago, I recommended Richard Beeman's book, Our Lives, Our Fortunes, and Our Sacred Honor, which covers the congressional debates leading up to the vote for independence. 
Uh, Beeman's book covers a lot more than that, several years prior to the debate over independence, and it only devotes the last 60 or 70 pages of his 400-page book to that issue. Another good option for more reading is some of the biographies of Thomas Jefferson or John Adams, which get into the debate a little more, but even most of these biographies only devote a few pages worth of coverage to the debate leading up to the Declaration of Independence. Most of the other stuff out there is very surfacey stuff meant for grade school children. Sadly, this is probably because we just don't have a good record of the actual debate or dealings and other political squabbling that went on behind the scenes. We heard in today's episode how many of the delegates flipped almost at once from opposing independence to supporting it. Many had probably been moving to that conclusion earlier. But this stuff was treason. It could get you hanged. If people talked about it at all, they did not do so publicly, and they certainly didn't leave much of a written record. As a result, historians have little to review. So my book recommendation this week is a book that gives short biographies of all the signers. Key to understanding the document is understanding the men who created it. There are several very good and well-known 19th century books that do this same thing, providing short biographies of all the signers. One of them was by Charles Goodrich in 1829, another by Nathaniel Dwight in 1840, and a third by Benson Lossing, written in 1848. Now, you can download any one of these three, and probably some others, at archive.org or by a reprint at amazon.com. And just in case you don't have all those names memorized, I have links to all of those books in my free ebook section on my blog for this week's episode. Just go to blog.amrevpodcast.com. There is a more recently released one, though, which is what this week's recommendation is. It's called Signing Their Lives Away, The Fame and Misfortune of the Men Who Signed the Declaration of Independence, by Denise Kiernan and Joseph T. Agnes. Both authors are prolific writers, but do not appear to be dedicated research historians. This 2009 book appears to draw on earlier books on the topic, but brings a few things up to date and puts it in a more modern context. The book covers all 56 signers in less than 250 pages, so don't expect a whole lot of detail. But if you do want an overview of all the signers, this book will give you that. My online recommendation this week is the Online Liberty Library, which is available at oll.libertyfund.org. This site is dedicated to libertarian ideas, but even if you're not a libertarian, their section of online works from the American Revolution and Constitution is really impressive. It includes complete works by George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, Alexander Hamilton, Thomas Paine, and others. There are many other hard-to-find works there, such as Joseph Galloway's Claim of the American Loyalist or James Otis's Considerations on Behalf of the Colonists. All documents are available to be read free online, download as a PDF, or import into your Kindle. It's a great resource for many early works, hard to find anywhere else. It would be nice if it had a searchable index. Sadly, that's not the case. 
The books are available, but you need to search each book individually. That said, the library contains many great resources, some hard to find online anywhere else, all free for the taking. Well, that's all for this week. I hope you will join me again next week for another American Revolution podcast.